Jesus said, do not store up treasures for yourself where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves can't break in and steal. Because wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God in heaven, as we look to your word today, Lord, I pray that we would hear from you, that we would hear your word to each one of us. Lord, in, in places where we need your, your challenge and your conviction, Lord, I pray that we would be open to receiving that. In places where we need, need your comfort, Lord, I pray that we would receive that from you. God, we thank you that your, your word is always uh, right and true. And if we are ready to receive it, it comes at just the right time for us. And so may we receive the word that you have for us this day. Amen. So we are coming to the end of our time in, in the book of Judges. Um, it has been a really fascinating journey for me. I think I admitted as we started that I was not looking forward to preaching on Judges at all. Uh, I was not, I didn't feel like it was really my choice, but it just, it really did seem where God was leading us. And I've had the same experience, I think every week as I've opened up whatever chapter or story we're looking at, as I read through it the first time and I think, I have no idea what this story is about, and I have no idea what I'm going to preach on on Sunday. And then I read through it a second time, and I usually catch some sort of glimpse of something. It's just a little glimmer out of the corner of my eye. And then on Tuesday evenings, I've had a group of people who have been joining me and reading through the scripture text together and uh, thinking about what God might be saying through it. And usually in that time, I begin to see uh, what God is saying to us as a church through this passage. And so um, each week, Tuesday mornings um, are pretty desperate for me. I really don't know <laughs> what's going to happen. Um, so fortunately, I've got four days to, to work through it and for God to lead. I and mean, every week, it's been the same thing where I, I come. I have no idea what the story is about. And then uh, over the course of the week, it just be, begins to come clear to me and, and a message comes. I've been grateful for that. The last four, last five chapters of the book of Judges covers two different stories. And we're going to look at one this week and one of those stories next week. Two really difficult stories that give us insight into what was happening in Israel during this time. And in these last two stories in the book of Judges, we find out what happens when human beings and when communities become unhooked from God and from his purposes for us. Otto brought up the word purpose today, and that's a word that's going to come up in, in my sermon today. In these last two stories, we find out what happens when human beings and communities become unhooked from God and from his purposes for us. In the scriptures before the book of Judges, we, we read that God joined himself to the people of Israel. That God chose Abraham, he made them a people, he rescued them out of slavery, he led them through the desert into the promised land, he gave them the land, he gave them his good law to guide their life together, and he gave him a purpose so that, so that, that through them that they would be a holy nation, a nation set apart, so that through him the nations would come to know God. 
God joins himself to the people of Israel, and he has a purpose for them. But what we have seen in the book of Judges from the very beginning is that over and over again is that Israel forgets God, and they ignore his purpose for them. They live their lives unhooked and disconnected from God and his purposes for them. Now, we've seen throughout the book of Judges that God is still at work and that he will have his way with Israel in one way or another. But in the book of Judges, for the most part, the people of Israel are not participating in his purpose for them. And we've watched the people of Israel throughout the book of Judges spiral more and more out of control over and over again. I've shown this graph and talked through it a few different times. Israel experiences peace for a time, and then they slip into apathy and idolatry. And then they repent, and they turn back to God, and God hears them, and he sends a deliverer to them. And then the cycle starts all over again. The first two-thirds of the book of Judges, we saw Israel cycling through this pattern over and over again. But in these last five chapters, this pattern doesn't return. We don't see the people repenting, and God doesn't send any deliverers. The people of Israel in this story, the characters in these story, they, they sometimes refer to God. Sometimes they, they talk to God. But it seems now that God is a bit of an echo or, or a memory back in the back of their minds. That God is sort of a piece of nostalgia from the past. And maybe, maybe even God could be manipulated or used to get what we want in some way. But the memory of God as the creator and the one who redeemed them and saved them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, that image of God is completely gone in their minds. And so this cyclical pattern in the first part of Judges is replaced with a different refrain And that's this, that there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 17 and 18 focus, uh, zoom in on one character, a man named Micah who's living in Israel at this time. And I want to read chapter 17. His story covers chapter 17 and 18, but I want to read chapter 17 for you to just get a flavor of who he is and what's going on in Micah's life. So I'm going to read Micah chapter 17 and encourage you to turn in your Bibles and to follow along. Micah, uh, Judges 17 says this, Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol, and they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. 
everyone did as he saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. And on his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me, be my father and priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord is good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. So we finish the story of Samson in chapter 16, and it just jumps into this middle, middle of this story with Micah and his mom. There's no introduction at all. Doesn't tell us how Micah stole this money. He just comes to her, and whether he has a guilty conscience or he heard her uttering this curse, and he decides to come clean and tell her, Mom, I'm the one that stole your money. And by the way, it was a lot of money. Later in, this, in the chapter, at the end of the chapter, the Levite priest agrees to serve as Micah's priest for 10 shekels a year. Micah stole 1,100 shekels of silver from his mama. Okay, this was not, you know, taking $20 from her purse one time. This was the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars that he took from her. We learn a few things here about Micah in this chapter. First, we learn that Micah's family is a wealthy family. Micah's mom has hundreds of thousands of dollars available to her lying around. We also learn that Micah is probably a bit of a spoiled mama's boy. Mom, I'm the one that stole $300,000 from you. Bless you, my son. It's kind of strange. Micah doesn't suffer any consequences of dishonoring his mother. Instead, he receives a blessing. In this story, there's also no mention of Micah's father. Micah seems to be fatherless, or at least his father is absent. We also learn, it seems, that Micah has, has some conscience. It bothers him what he did to his mom. He's not okay with it, and he, he fesses up. We also see that Micah, again, he's, he's one of these Israelites that has some memory of God. God is a bit of an echo in the back of his head. But the biblical vision of who God is is completely absent from Micah's mind. He doesn't understand how worship works. He doesn't understand how priests and Levites work. He doesn't understand where blessing comes from. Micah is completely unhooked from the true God and his purposes for him. And so what we see is that Micah is a man who is grasping for meaning and purpose anywhere that he can find it. And we're going to see today that Micah makes some pretty bad decisions about life, and it leads to some suffering for him. But before I get too hard on Micah, it's important to say this. Micah is simply a product of the life of Israel at that time. Life in Israel was empty and meaningless. 
There was no spiritual life in Israel. The culture of Israel did not cultivate worship. It did not cultivate life. It did not cultivate obedience to God or joy or healthy relationships with one another. The leaders of Israel, as we've seen, like Samson, were way more interested in being like the Canaanites than they were being what Israel was supposed to be. Samson did what was right in his own eyes, and the people of Israel followed along. Sometimes Christians in in America shake our fingers at how bad the culture out there is. But what about the culture in the church? The world is always going to be the world. It shouldn't surprise us when people who are not following Jesus don't act like Jesus. But it should surprise and anger us when those who claim Jesus' name don't act like him. Micah was born into an empty spiritual culture in Israel, a culture that did not promote worship or community life. In the book of Judges, there's no reference to the celebrations that God gave to Israel to remember him by, where the community was supposed to come together in joy and to remember the works that God has done. And so no wonder Micah has forgotten who God is and what he has done. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, is not cultivating that kind of life in its people anymore. Micah is a product of the failure of Israel to live out their purpose. He is the result of the meaningless and empty way of life that Israel was living at that time. And so Micah grows up as a young man. He has kids. And throughout this time, he has this huge gaping hole in his life. He is aimless. He has no direction. No one has pointed him to God or to God's purposes for him. Our our soul, your soul, the deepest part of who you are, Paul calls it our innermost person. The true you is meant to be filled with God. Filled with God. Filled with God. And with his purposes for you. But because no one has showed Micah who God is, because no one in Israel has pointed God to, to Micah, has not shown him how to worship him, has not reminded him of the great things that God has done, Micah is a young man with this huge gaping hole in his soul that he tries to fill up by grasping and possessing anything that he can get his hands on in order to fill up this emptiness inside him. Because Israel has not cultivated a life of worship and vibrant community, Micah is left to figure out things on his own. He's left by himself to find meaning and purpose for himself. And so let's look at a few of the things that Micah tries First, Micah tries money and possessions. At some point before the story begins, Micah was sitting around and he thinks, you know, I think money is so important to me that I'm going to steal a whole lot of it from my mom. And somewhere in Micah is this belief that having a lot of money is going to bring him some satisfaction, so much so that he's willing to steal from his own family. That doesn't work. He gets a guilty conscience and he tells her about it and he gives it back. We see in this story that Micah also tries shallow relationships. The Levite comes along, and what does Micah say? Come and be a father to me. 
I'll pay you to be a father to me. I'll pay you 10 grand and I'll put a roof over your head and clothes on your back and I'll feed you if you'll be a father to me. Micah knows that this hole in his soul has something to do with meaningful relationships and he doesn't have any. He's alone. No dad around, a mom who probably spoils him and no other relationships of meaning and purpose that we know about. So this Levite comes along and Micah is so desperate for some meaningful connection, some meaningful relationship that he agrees to pay the Levite to be a father for him. Of course, that doesn't work. In the next chapter, and we won't read a whole lot about this, but in the next chapter, the Levite gets a better deal. Somebody else comes along and says, I got a better deal for you, Levite priest. Come be a priest for all of us. We'll pay you more than Micah does. And of course, the Levite leaves. This is a transactional, shallow sort of relationship. And so Micah is out. We also see that Micah seeks out meaning through spiritual significance. Micah has built a shrine. He's built some sort of special holy house or hut or some sort of place where he can go and try to fill up this spiritual hole in his life. He has some idols there. He has an ephod, which is this special shirt that priests wore. And strangely, he makes his son a priest of his own little homegrown religion. But then this Levite comes along, a Levite. A Levite was the tribe of, the Levites were the tribe of people who were supposed to be the priests in Israel. They were the ones who were to serve in the temple and to teach the people about God and to pray for the people to God and to make sacrifices in the temple and the tabernacle for them. And Micah believes that this Levite who comes wandering to his house, that if he is associated with this Levite, with this holy man, then God will bless him. That he will begin to fill up some of this emptiness in him if he has this Levite nearby. I think we can kind of think of the Levites as a religious brand, as a religious brand. When we think of brands, we usually think about tennis, uh, you know, tennis shoes or clothes or food, but brands actually go deeper than that for us. You and I always want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And brands in our culture give us an easy way to feel like we are part of something bigger, something significant. And corporations know this very well about us. So just as a question, whose logo is this? How do you know that? The words aren't up there. Okay, they have spent billions, I'm sure, so that you know that this is their logo. This is Nike's mission statement. To nurture emotional ties between the Nike brand and consumer segments. There's nothing here about making good shoes or making shirts or anything like that. Their entire goal, by design, their mission is to nurture emotional ties with you and that logo. And it works. Nike is not a clothing company. They are on purpose a branding company that knows very well how emotionally tied we are to our brands. And their whole goal is to create 
these emotional ties between us and our product. There's been studies done that the McDonald's brand, the McDonald's brand is so imprinted on your kid's mind that carrots and apples taste better to them if they come out of a McDonald's wrapper. Okay, so that's the way that branding works in our imaginations. It's deeply powerful, and it's especially scary for how much all of that is working underneath our consciousness. We are unaware of the ways that we are being affected by that. And I want to suggest to you that this is the role that the Levite brand plays in Micah's life. In Israel, and we're going to see later in the story, in in, um, chapter 18, the story of the Danites, where, and then actually in the next story after that, that there is this emotional tie to the Levite brand. They are the people who are close to God. And if I can be close to a Levite, then I'll be close to God too. That relationship with the Levite becomes a substitute for an actual relationship with God that is offered to them. We see in this story that Micah is looking for spiritual significance. He senses that this hole in his soul needs to be filled with something spiritual, something that relates to this God who is an echo in the back of his mind. So he seeks out significance through building these shrines, through having these religious trinkets, and by associating himself with the Levite brand. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures on heaven, where moth and rust cannot destroy, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Micah has spent his life gathering up all sorts of earthly treasures. And he's done a pretty good job of it. He gets to the end of chapter 17, and he says, now I'm going to be blessed. I've got my shrines. I've got my money. I've got my Levite priest. I'm in a good place. But in the second half of Micah's story, it's all taken away from him in one night. It's a group of men from the tribe of Dan. We won't take a lot of time on their story today, but these men are on a mission to find the easy life. And they've heard that there's one spot of land where people live in safety and where people live, are, that live there are prosperous and secure. And so they are ready to go and take that land. And on their way to that land, they hear about this guy named Micah who has this shrine with these expensive idols. And they just go in and they take it from Micah. I want to read these stories in, in Judges chapter 18. I'm going to read starting at verse 14. The five men from Dan who spied out the land of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, other household gods, a carved image, and a cast idol? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance to the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the carved image, the ephod, the other household gods, and the cast idol, while the priest and 600 armed men stood at the entrance to the gate. When these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, and the other household gods, and the cast idol, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, Be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us. Be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? Then the priest was glad. 
He took the ephod, the other household gods, and the carved image and went along with the people, putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, and they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask? What's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us or some hot-tempered men will attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. We spend so much of our our time and our money and our energy trying to gain things that are going to leave us or that we are going to leave someday when we're put into the ground. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I titled this sermon today, Micah the American. Micah, in many ways, is like a typical American. Micah is wealthy. Americans are the wealthiest and most prosperous people in world history. More access to food and clothing and shelter and luxuries and entertainment than any other culture, any country ever, ever, ever. Like Micah, Americans settle for empty and shallow relationships. Micah's father is absent in this story. And when a Levite comes along, he is willing to pay the Levite to be his father, to fill up that gap, that hole in his life. Fatherlessness in America is epidemic. About one in every three children live in a home without their biological father. And the statistics for the consequences of that are astounding. Just one example Girls are seven times, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen if they grow up in a home without a father. Seven times more likely. This is huge relational holes in our life caused by parentlessness, fatherlessness. Relationship of love and commitment are something that all of us deeply need. We need friendship. We need relationships with people who are deeply committed to us over the long haul. But we settle. We settle for shallow relationships. We settle for relationships that are mediated through social media, or we settle for relationships based in our identity to a sports team or a political party or some other thing that's important to us. And like the Levite, we've experienced that people around us, our relationships are pretty quick to ditch us when things aren't working out. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're often too quick, too willing to ditch others if the relationship isn't working out. We become content with shallow and superficial relationships when we need long, committed, deep, lasting relationships with friends. Like Micah, Americans are spiritually hungry. 
Most Americans have some memory of God, but he is for them, in many cases, just an echo. A distant memory, some nostalgia from the past. Or maybe in the worst cases, God is useful to try to manipulate him to get material blessings. He's useful to to manipulate people for political gain. God's name is used in vain to get whatever it is that we want. Like Micah, all of us, every American, every single human being has this huge hole in our souls that only God and his purposes for us can fill. And like Micah, we grasp for all sorts of other things. We use our wealth to try to use that to fill that hole up. And we have access to just about anything and everything that the world has to offer. And so we fill up this huge hole in our soul, this deepest part of who we are, with stuff. We know that money and stuff can't buy happiness, but we will drown ourselves in financial debt anyways, trying to make it happen. We deeply long for committed and lasting relationships, but we spend more time scrolling on our iPhone screen than we do sitting across from our friends in deep, long conversation with one another about what's really going on in our hearts. We all have this deep spiritual hunger for connection with our creator, for communion with God, for our most significant identity to be found in that deep, deep love that Jesus has for us. But we settle. We settle for being associated with a brand or a political party or a sports team or whatever other community gives us a sense of meaning and purpose. I started this sermon by reminding us that Micah was a product of the life of Israel at this time. He is a product of that spiritual community that had lost connection with God, had lost connection with God's purposes, and were no longer shaping and cultivating people to worship God or to obey God's good law that he had given to them. Micah's problem was not the Canaanites. Canaanites are going to be Canaanites. Micah's problem was that the people of Israel were not being Israel. Micah was growing up in a spiritual desert where there was no water or good spiritual food to feed his very hungry soul. And so he grasped for anything and everything that he could find to fill that up. And he found some things that worked for a little while. Some earthly treasures, passing temporary things that are here today and gone tomorrow, and he found that those things can be very easily stolen from him. But Micah's problem was not the idol-worshiping Canaanites around him. Micah's problem is that Israel was not being Israel. Micah did not grow up into a spiritual community of worship and celebration of God's goodness and kindness and salvation. He was never taught or shown what it means to live a life of obedience to God and friendship with him in deep community and relationship with people. Friends, we have an important and vital calling in our culture as the church. And sometimes we spend a lot of our time shaking our fingers at the Canaanites out there. And that's an easy thing to do. But more important to us, more valuable, the essential thing 
is that we remember our calling and our purpose as the church. To be a place where men and women and children are able to grow up into maturity through deep and loving relationships with one another and with God. Friends, there are a lot of Micahs out there. A lot of Micahs. Micahs are people who have some echo of God in their life, some memory about him, some sense that maybe even specifically Jesus is good and important and that Jesus provides some way of salvation for me. But the problem for the Micahs of our world is not the Canaanites. The problem for the Micahs of our world is that the church has not been the church. The church has not offered a spiritually vital and alive place to experience God and deep and meaningful relationships with other people. So these Micahs, they may be teenagers, they may be young adults, they may be newly married folks, they may be retirees, are wandering all over the place looking for and grasping for purpose to fill up this hole that's in their soul. They are grasping for it through possessions, through shallow relationships, through philosophical ideas and political ideologies. They are rushing to find some place, some group of people where they belong. And so I want to remind us today very simply of our purpose and our calling here, Broadway, because I don't want us to forget it. I think in many ways we do a good job of these things, but I want to remind us of these two very simple callings that we have to the Micahs around us in our world. Our calling is to be faithful to what we have been given by God's grace through the good news of Jesus Christ. And those two things are first, that we are to remind people that a real relationship with God is available to them. The deepest places of our hearts long to know God and to be with him. Our hearts are restless until they rest in him. In the good news of Jesus Christ, it tells us that God also wants to be with us. So much so that he became one of us, that he took on human flesh and came to live with us so that we could come to know him. And then he went to the cross and he died. And when he did, he took on himself the consequences of our sin and our disobedience. And he took those consequences, namely death, into the grave, and then he left it there. And he rose from the dead, left death and its sin and all of its consequences in the grave, and made a way through faith to resurrected life. A promise that if we are in him, if we are joined together with him, that this hole in our soul that can only be fulfilled by God and his purposes for us can be filled now and forever. And our calling as a church is to live out this reality, this real relationship with God reality in our own lives and to invite other people into it too. The second calling that we have is the call to be a family. Gospel tells us that when we come to Jesus, that we are made a part of a new family. 
Sims always stops me from using the word community because it's such an overused, dry, know-nothing word now. It reminds me to use the word family. The gospel says that in Jesus we are part of a new family, that we are brothers and sisters together, and that we are bound together forever. And our calling as a church is to live out these relationships faithfully. And so in a world where Micahs are searching for belonging, for relationship, for connection, for friendship, we are called to be a place where we set aside our distractions and we give our attention to one another. We share meals. We visit each other when we're sick. We take the casserole to the person who's feeling depressed. We make the phone call to the person that we haven't seen in a while. We put down our phones for a couple hours and sit on the porch and listen to one another's hearts. What's really going on in there? The Micahs of our world are people who have some memory of God. People who have an echo of who he is, but too often the church has not been the church. And so they've left. And they've tried to grasp anything to fill that hole with other things that are temporary and fleeting. So our calling is to be faithful to what we have been given as the church. To be people who live in relationship with God, in relationship with one another, and to invite others in. Into those places of intimacy and community and belonging with one another and with God. Lord, I I pray that we would be faithful to this here at Broadway. We thank you. We thank you for the ways that you, by your spirit, have already done that and have already created community like that here. But Lord, we want more of it, and we know that we still fall far, far short of what you're calling us to be. So Lord, I pray that we, we would be faithful to this calling, to live by example, in communion with you, in relationship with you, and invite others into it. That we would be faithful to walking in deep relationship with one another and to invite others into it so that they can taste and see and find a place where they belong. Lord, we pray for the Micahs in our lives who have been hurt by the church, who have looked at the church and said, I do not want to be a part of that, and I don't know where God is in all of that. We pray for them. Lord, we ask that you would reveal yourself to them. We pray that you would would use us to move into their lives and to be with them, to remind them of what's available, the good news of Jesus. Lord, I ask these things in his name and by the power of the Spirit that you give to us. Amen.